Hi everybody, welcome back to the third season of What's the Crime with Grania and Gemma. Uh, this has been a long time coming. Thanks everybody so much for your patience. We have been reading all of your messages and just thanks so much for all the support for seasons one and two. Uh, it's been overwhelming to say the least and you know we've been working really hard with lots of new stories to tell for season three so as usual, we'll not beat around the bush too much. We will just get straight back into it. So today's episode is about the story of Jennifer Shute. Just to give a warning, this story does discuss violence against a child, so it mightn't be suitable for everybody. In 1990, Jennifer Shute was eight years old and she was counting down the days until she was going into third grade. So I assume that's like, what, second, third class here? Yeah, eight. she's eight. Yeah, I thought we'd be around about that. So she was from the small town of Dickinson, Texas, and it was just her and her mum, Ellen. So some reports call her mum Elaine, but most say Ellen. So sorry if this is wrong, but I'm just going to stick with Ellen to tell the story. But they lived in a small ground floor apartment, which was part of the Yorktown apartments, which was small, but it was perfect because it was just the two of them. Um, Jennifer often slept in beside her mother, like lots of children her own age she was afraid of the dark and she found comfort in sleeping beside her mum on a hot summer night in the middle of the sweltering texas summer on august 9th 1990 at 2 30 a.m ellen asked jennifer to go and sleep in her own room well she was exhausted because she had to get up early for work the next morning and like sleeping with your child in your bed like you're not going to get a proper night's sleep they'll be yeah. tossing and turning waking you up um, so Jennifer did. She went down to her own room down the hall. Um, she knew that her mum had to get up early and so she put on the big light in her room and took out her piggy bank and she just kind of starts counting the change and that, the coins. She's just kind of trying to distract herself so that she will eventually drift off to sleep. In the morning, when Ellen wakes up, she goes down to Jennifer's room, but she's not in her bed. So she's kind of looking for her everywhere, but she can't find her. And then she starts to get a bit worried. Um, the air conditioning in the flats was broken, so it wasn't uncommon to leave windows open to allow a breeze into the home. Like it was in the middle of the hot Houston summer. Yeah, like so, desert heat. Yeah, it was the only relief that they had. And when this kind of dawned on her with the realisation that she couldn't find Jennifer and that they were on a ground floor apartment. Oh my God. She started to really panic then. The light was left on. She knew that you could see from the outside. So she called the police to report Jennifer missing. Like I said, Jennifer was afraid of the dark and she knew that she never would have like... Wandered off on nah, her own nah. or anything. She never would yeah. have got up and went anywhere on her own. Um, And she was, of course, hysterical. She was in shock, as was the rest of the community. The hours ticked by... So obviously she called the police and the police... Yes. Okay. The police come, they assemble search teams, they're looking for, they're kind of um, stopping cars in the area, they're checking homes, knocking on doors, but the hours tick by and there's no sign from Jennifer. They interview Jennifer's mum, Ellen, who says, I didn't hear anything, I just got up in the morning and she was gone. She is the only thing I have, that's my baby, it's just been us two together, I have nothing without her and I need her back. It's a it's a really sad interview. Yeah. Like she, you can see that she's so distraught. Yeah, Jennifer's disappearance was broadcast on local radio stations. She was four feet tall. She weighed forty five pounds. She had brown hair and blue eyes, 
and the whole community held their breath waiting to hear some news. So this is just, this is like the first day she went missing yes. and it's already on the radio. And It's on the radio. Police are doing everything they can trying to find her. And um, there's no like sign of her anywhere. She's not in her friend's house. She's kind of, her mom knows though. Her mom's like, she's not just going to get up and go somewhere. Like this is suspicious to say the very least. She knows that someone is involved with this. Then late in the afternoon, on the other side of town, less than four miles away from her home, Jennifer was found in a field. It was above California Street by some children that were out playing beside their house. They found her small, bleeding, naked body that was covered in ant bites and immediately phoned emergency services. But miraculously, Jennifer wasn't dead. Barely breathing and with tremendous blood loss, she was immediately transferred via helicopter to the hospital. Ellen, her family and her friends rushed to the hospital and it was touch and go whether or not she would survive. Her injuries were severe. Her most obvious injury was a large laceration to the throat with an open trachea. So her throat had been slashed from ear to ear. They guessed that she had been sexually assaulted as she was discovered naked and bruised. And she had scratches all down her back, suggesting that she had been dragged. Her wound across her throat was so deep that it cut straight through her vocal cords. Jesus. But miraculously, it missed all of her major arteries, which is the reason that she was still alive. This coupled up with the fact that she was able to throw her hand across her throat when she was lying. That allowed the blood loss to be stemmed. So that was what gave her a fighting chance at life. And that she was. She was a fighter. After intense life-saving treatment, she stabilised. And after weeks and weeks of treatment in the hospital, Jennifer was able to explain what happened to her. Oh, God. So that night, after she had gone to bed and eventually drifted off to sleep, she woke up to being carried down the street by a strange man who had covered her nose and mouth with his hands to stop her from screaming. So she knew straight away that something was wrong. She was never left to be looked after by really anybody else aside from her mum. Her grandparents were also there, but other than them and her mum, you know, there was never really anybody that she would kind of be left to look after. She was wearing just her t-shirt and her underwear and he bundled her into a car and told her that he was an undercover police officer. So he told her to calm down, everything's going to be okay. Jennifer is kind of trying to rationalise the situation. So she's obviously afraid. She doesn't know where she is. She's afraid of this man, but she's also aware that, okay, he's a policeman. He's saying he's an undercover policeman. They're, you know, they're the good guys. They're there to sort of protect people. They drove past her grandparents' house and a short distance later, they pulled into a parking lot in her school. Here he offered her sweets, but Jennifer obviously was well-versed in not accepting sweets from strangers and she says no. So he's like, your mum's going to come here and pick you up. And he starts to drink a few beers and smoke cigarettes while they wait. But there's no sign from her mum. And the man turns to Jennifer and says that her mum's not coming and he starts to drive the car again. They drive for about a mile and they pull into a a deserted area and Jennifer begins to 
um, sort of question. She's sort of like, look, if you're really a policeman, then where's your gun? Where's your badge? Yeah. Like she's she's eight, but she she's knows. eight, you'd but know, she's so smart. Know, yeah, but you know there's something it not just, right. You'd have that feeling. Exactly. She knew that there wasn't something right, and she's like, look, if this is real, where's your gun? Where's your badge? He says in the back seat, and so she leans over the front seat to look for his gun and his proof of identity. And this is when this man pointses and Jennifer's attack begins. Oh, I actually don't think I can hear this. He pulled off her underwear and took out a knife and asks her, which I just think is so, asked her if he's scaring her, like getting a kick out of the fact that she's terrified. Jennifer doesn't recall all of the attack because she drifted in and out of consciousness as the man strangled her multiple times while he was attacking her. So she's kind of passing out and waking up again. When she does wake up, she's aware that she's outside and she's being dragged across the ground naked by her ankles. So she tries to call out for help, but she doesn't really, she doesn't understand why her voice won't call out and she's not able to make any noises. So she, um, she knows the only way that she will survive is if she plays dead. And that's exactly what she does. The man drops her body on a fire ant hill and believing that she's dead, he walks away. She hears a car door slam and someone drive away. This is when she manages to lift one hand to cover her neck and she lies there. And she lies there for what must have felt like an eternity. She lay there for some 12 to 14 hours. They can't exactly be sure how long, like exactly, because they can't pinpoint the time that she was kidnapped, like to a T. Yeah. So she's drifting in and out of consciousness unable to move, could hear cars passing on a road nearby, nearby but she can't call out. She this has no voice. Terrifying. I actually feel sick. She was being bitten by the ants that she is lying on because he left her on a fire ant hill. And I've never been bit by a fire ant. I don't know what that feels like, but apparently that's very painful. So the pain of that kind of keeps bringing her back into consciousness. She hears children playing in the field beside her and... That's when, miraculously, they discover her body. Uh, she drifts out of consciousness again and the children run to get help and that's when the emergency services are called. When she wakes up, there's a police officer with her. He's telling her, look, she's found. Everything's been, you know, going to be okay. Um, and I'm sure that she was so relieved, but the last person she was with told her was a police officer. Yeah. And she's eight. Um, so she's... She's terrified at that point, but she doesn't she doesn't lose consciousness from here on out. She's taken to the hospital and that's when she undergoes uh, treatment for her injuries. So it is it's, her injuries are very, very severe um, and it takes two weeks before she's actually stable enough for her family to actually, you know, come and see her and for, for police officers to visit. But the problem is she can't speak. Her vocal cords have been cut. And she's told that she may never make a noise again. So she starts to write notes and draw pictures to communicate with the police officers. Uh, Some of her notes included, the man dragged me into a big field. He said he was an undercover cop and I don't have my gun or badge right now. He choked me four times as hard as he could. In reference to the car, she said two doors, a bluish black colour. She even knew the brand of the beer that he was drinking, Bud Light, and the cigarettes that he was smoking was Marlboro. Oh my God, she's so observant. She's, she's so observant. And after going through all this, 
Like, and all of that trauma, not even been yeah. able to talk, but been able to actually write all this out and ex- explain all of this to them. She's able to describe him himself. She says he's white. He's got a black mustache. He kind of looked greasy. He might have had a scar on his face and he's in his 30s. Like, how would you even know what in your 30s on your age yeah. looks like? She works. think everyone's, everyone's old. <laughs> everyone's old. She worked alongside a forensic artist uh, called Lewis Gibson to provide a sketch of her attacker. So this lady arrived um, four days after the attack and they worked through books with pictures of like different types of features so that they could actually create this picture. So she's looking through books and she's looking through different features like different eyes, noses, mouths, so that the artist can different put all eyes. this together. Eyes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> different different features so that they can put all this together and um create this sketch but like again she can't speak through all of this so this has taken more time than the police would like but this is amazing that she's able to do this they um they do eventually uh create this sketch and um haven't seen it it is a white man he's got dark hair dark eyes dark eyebrows and like a black a black kind of mustache you know like a real thick mustache from like the 70s yeah a quarter mile from the crime scene police find clothes hidden in a ditch they find a pink t-shirt and white underwear that Jennifer was wearing but they also find a pair of men's underwear a t-shirt and they come to the conclusion that these must have belonged to the perpetrator so at that time DNA obviously isn't what it is today so they can't like run through any databases or anything Um, and there's really very little other evidence for them to sort of go on there were no leads in the case like the police kind of were just repeatedly were coming to dead ends there's no suspects they added more staff to their department. Like the town is on edge because this person hasn't been caught. Meanwhile, Jennifer's going through her recovery and eventually she's discharged and allowed home. On leaving the hospital, she's sort of in a way kind of sad to leave because that's like her safe place, of her course. safe haven. Yeah, they traumatised and going back home. That's where she was taken. And that's where she was taken and she was taken care of when she was in the hospital and exactly like you said you're going out into that same world where someone hurt her so viciously to the surprise of the doctors she regained her voice oh my god her vocal cords healed and something that she has said since then which I love is I like to say that I haven't shut up since oh my god I love her she returned back to school uh, they positioned guards in the school because, like, of course, she's trying to get on with her life. But the trauma of this ordeal and the fact that her attacker is still out there. Yeah, and I'm sure it's a small community and everyone's on edge like you would be. Like you would be. Uh, like, she's afraid that this person is going to come back and finish the job. Because um, this person obviously thought that, like, he'd killed her and yeah. he left her for dead. Yeah. So. In her head, she's yeah. like, he obviously wanted me to die. Yeah. So with no leads, no suspects and no new information, the case eventually goes cold. And the months turn into years with no updates for Jennifer. She finishes high school. She attends college. She eventually got a job as a librarian at a children's library, which is a job that she loved. But she could never find closure she could never heal properly from her trauma because she knew that that man that attacked her was still out there and also the fact that he could be doing this to somebody else yeah a whopping 18 years pass 
and Jennifer gets a phone call from an officer, Jim Cromie. He's a detective with the Dickinson Police Department, and he was design, dis, sorry, assigned as the Special Crimes Investigator, which focuses on child abuse and sex crimes. So he tells her that he has taken over her case and he wants to meet with her. He said something to her which she described as changing her life. He said, Jennifer, I will do everything in my power until the end of my career to get you the answers that you need for this case. So she felt like there was somebody as dedicated to solving this case as she was. Yeah. Uh, something that one of the investigators said for the reason that they chose Jennifer's case. It's, it's a really upsetting kind of quote. Uh, he said, this is the only one that I can think of that the victim have suffered some traumatic injuries and survived. The main reason the CARD team, Child Abduction Rapid Deployment Team, picked this case was because she was alive. In cases of child abduction, it is rare that the child is recovered alive. Frequently, you recover a body and most times you never find them. Which is quite sad. I know. It's horrifying as well. Jennifer really wanted to help. Like she wanted to be a part of solving her case and she was involved. Jim Cromie contacted the FBI and asked them to test the underwear from the crime scene that the police had found that had belonged to an adult male. So for the most part, when it comes to cold cases, like time's never really on your side. Like people's memories fade, resources dwindle. But the advantage of this case was that forensic advances allowed for DNA testing and profiling. Yes. So this is 18 years later. He's contacting her. So this is like 2008. Yes, this is 2008. So they do that. They submit the um, the underwear and they wait and they wait, not even knowing if there's going to be any viable DNA or if there would be a hit. And then a full year later, at 2.30 in the morning, Officer Tim gets a phone call and it's from the DNA lab. And they told him, we got a hit. Oh, my God. Who is it? On September 22nd, 2009, the FBI gave them a name. Dennis Earl Bradford. A name that had never come up in their investigation before. Okay, so I'm just going to briefly interrupt this episode because we just want to say a very quick thank you to our sponsor for season three, the Muff Liquor Company. So before you start sniggering, Muff is actually a village in Donegal and they have a liquor company. So get your head out of the gutter. (laughs) The Muff Liquor Company is an award-winning premium handcrafted Irish spirit company. You can purchase six times distilled handcrafted Irish gin, whiskey and vodka. And I mean, we have personally tasted (laughs) all of the above. Numerous times. (laughs) So we can say firsthand that they are definitely the best. But don't just take our word for it. You can order online at themuffliquorcompany.com. Hi, what can I get you? Hi, uh, can I get two sparkling waters and two uh, margaritas? No, uh, two mojitos. No, sorry. Uh, just two more. Moscow Mules? Having trouble asking for our famous vodka and gin by name? No problem, because now you can buy your favourite muff liquor online. Fancy enjoying a bit of muff at home? Order now at themuffliquorcompany.com and use discount code What's the Crime for 10% off. The Muff Liquor Company. Come for the name, stay for the taste. Over 18s. Drink responsibly. Visit drinkaware.ie. 
So please do let us know if you enjoy a nice gin and tonic or a nice hot whiskey listening to the next episode of What's the Crime? He was a 39-year-old man from Arkansas who had just been released from prison. They established that he had two addresses in Dickinson all those years ago at the time of the attack and both were very close proximity to Jennifer's mother's apartment. One year after Jennifer's attack in 1991, Dennis Bradford met an 18-year-old girl called Lisa and he was 21 at the time. They met in Hot Springs, Arkansas and they went to marry just six months after their first meeting. They had a son and a daughter but um, their marriage ended. One April night then in 1996 when he was in Hot Springs Bar in Arkansas called Gators, he asked a woman if he could buy her a drink and she said no. He went back a wee while later and asked uh, did she want to play pool with him and she said no. And sometime um, later in the evening she did eventually say yes to playing a game of pool with him. Then he bought her a few drinks. After the last call, he offered her a ride home and she went with him. So he told her that uh, he wanted to take her the long way as there was a song he wanted her to hear. Oh, my God. And before turning on to a back road, then he stopped the car and attacked her. He choked her and punched her. And when she started to lose consciousness, he dragged her from the car. When she woke up, she was naked, her clothes scattered in a field. And he told her not to move. He ran to his car and returned with a knife and with a knife to her throat, he raped her. In 1996, Bradford was charged with attempted first degree murder. But before the trial, it was reduced to one count of kidnapping and one count of rape. They then did eventually deadlock on the rape charge, but he was convicted of kidnapping and he was sentenced to 12 years in prison and he was ordered to provide a DNA sample. And that sample was placed into the CODA system and that was the sample that ultimately matched back to the evidence that they submitted from Jennifer Shewitt's case. They also received a copy of his driver's license from 1990. Oh my God. The image that she drew... The sketch that the forensic artist drew alongside Jennifer is identical to the driver's license. Like, it's unbelievable. And um, soon after then, the police travelled up to um, Arkansas to meet with the police up there and they pull him over on a traffic stop and they arrest Dennis Earl Bradford with a warrant. Oh, this is crazy. So when they call Jennifer to let her know that he had been arrested, she is elated she described it as surreal like all those years of never knowing if they were going to get and him thinking that he got away with it like Like, this eight-year-old girl and then he went on to marry and have kids like it's sick also he was 20 he was so young like from all outward appearances like he looked just like the guy next door he was a welder um like his neighbors said that the accusations against him seemed out of character To read the allegations, if you put those together, it doesn't add up to the guy who lived across the street. That was what one of his neighbours said. Um, He was a friendly neighbourhood guy. He helped me move in, carried boxes like any other neighbour. Like, very strange. Now, when they do interview him, when the police interview him, I am going to play a small part of this interview. Now, it is a little bit hard to hear. Don't worry if you don't understand or catch everything. I'm just going to briefly read it out after. You ever heard the name Jennifer Shewitt? Yes. 
Do you ever have occasion to come in contact with her? Yes. Tell me about that. No. So the cop. You ever heard the name Jennifer Shewitt? Bradford, yes. Did you ever have occasion to come into contact with her? Bradford, yes. Cop, tell me about that. Bradford, no. There's two sides to every story. There is no other side to the story. If you were to see her, I think you would be extremely proud of her. I really do. <laughs> She's alive. She's alive. She's alive. I'm Cop, there's two sides to every story. Bradford, there is no other side to the story. Cop, if you were to see her, I think you would be really proud. I really do. Bradford, he's silent and then he breaks down. She's alive. Cop, yes, she's alive. He starts to cry. She's alive. Cop, and let me tell you something right now. She's with us. So... When they interview him, he confessed to what he had done. I was like a savage animal. I can't force myself to say it. I don't know why. I've never known why. Many times I wanted to just end it, but I've never had the guts. Like the fact that he broke down, like she's alive. Like He didn't even know she was alive he all didn't this know, time. Know so she... he genuinely thought he'd killed an eight-year-old girl. Yes. And, and went on and lived his I life. I don't know if he's crying, like if there's like, he's happy that she's alive or like, I don't know what sort of he was feeling there, if it was remorse. So when the case is getting ready to go to trial, Jennifer is really trying to perfect her victim impact statements. Like she has so much to say. She spent nearly 19 years like with all of these things that she wants to say to this man that so savagely stole her childhood but in the end she never got to say any of those things and the trial never went ahead because when Dennis was incarcerated he hung himself in his cell when Jennifer got the call she was devastated like she started to cry all of the evidence that they'd gathered, the research they had done, this was all in part to give Jennifer her day in court to face him. Her closure for this, for, for her. For her closure that she... She needed. That she needed. Like one of the first things she actually said when she got the call after he'd been arrested was, please don't let him kill himself. Like a part of her knew that that would be his way out. And... On the day the trial would have taken place, she went to his grave and she read her victim impact statement. Dennis Bradford, you chose the wrong little 45-pound, 8-year-old girl to try and murder because for 19 years, I've thought of you every single day and helped in searching for you. In my heart, I knew you were out there. And now I know, listening to my heart all of these years, and never giving up on finding you, I was right. So whilst she is sitting at the grave, she says out loud, I wonder if he's hearing me. And just then, a fire ant bit her on the leg, and she took that as a sign from God that he heard her loud and clear. Oh my God. She did go on to marry and have a family, even though it was actually originally thought that she wouldn't be able to have children because of the severity of the effects of the attack. 
but a Texas doctor heard her story and donated his services for her intro vitro treatment twice. So now she has two beautiful, healthy children, a daughter, Jenna, and a son, Jonah. And I think to end this episode, the best way that I can end this is with a few words from Jennifer herself. Throughout this journey, I've had two main goals, and they were to find the man who kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and attempted to murder me 19 years ago so that he could not hurt anyone else, and to use my voice in telling my story to as many people as I possibly could in hopes that I may encourage other victims of violent crime to stand up and speak out against criminals. Today, I can say very proudly that I have accomplished both of these goals. I hope that my case will remain as a reminder to all victims of violent crime to never give up hope in seeking justice, no matter how long it may take or how hard it may be. With determination and by using your voice to speak out, you're capable of anything. Okay, guys, thanks so much for listening, as always, and tune in next week for the next episode of What's the Crime. Bye.